Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this UCL Minds Lunch Hour Lecture. I'm Roger Highfield, the Science Director of the Science Museum Group, and it's a pleasure to welcome you all. In fact, it's a particular pleasure because I'm a visiting professor at UCL, where I've been working on the virtual human with the Comp Biomed Consortium, which is led by UCL. So that brings me to today's very distinguished speaker. It's a huge honor to introduce Andrea Townsend Nicholson, who's a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at UCL. Andrea's interested in understanding how extracellular signals are transduced into intracellular responses. She focuses on the central and autonomic nervous systems along with the cardiovascular system. In other words, the body's wiring and plumbing. Now there's a huge amount for her to discuss and there's not really enough time to do it all. So do ask lots of questions via Slido. Just in case you didn't get the event information, just go to slido and enter the code LHL2. Today, Andrea is gonna talk about virtual humans, supercomputers and health. This digital twin technology promises to change the future of medicine. Just imagine assembling an in silico doppelganger of every person using all their health data from the sequence of their genome to the architecture and gait of their skeleton. You could do health casts by using your digital twin to help you choose a healthy and fulfilling lifestyle. Your doctor could test different treatments on your digital twin to choose the one that's absolutely right for you. Now let's hear about virtual humans and the dawn of truly personalized medicine. Over to you, Andrea. Thank you very much for, for the absolutely stellar introduction, Roger. I assume you can see my screen and we're all good to go? Okay. So what I'd like to do today is introduce you to virtual humans, to explain how supercomputers are important in creating them, and to help you understand how they can be used for our health and our well-being as we age. So this is going to be a whirlwind tour. We're going to start by meeting the virtual human. And then we are going to look at supercomputers, build a virtual human, and see what is involved in using your virtual human. So let's start by meeting the virtual human. Basically complex machines. In our efforts to care and improve them, we look to those who push the limits of what is humanly possible, such as athletes. Now, you would say, what can we learn from them if every athlete is different? If they achieve peak performance through customised diets, training and technology. As it turns out, we too are all different. That is to say, there is no single lifestyle, no diet, no medication that will work equally well for all of us. If this is so, how can we get the best out of our bodies? Now, imagine a virtual human, not made of flesh and bone, one made of bits and bites. And not just any human, but a virtual version of you, accurate at every scale, from the way your heart beats down to the letters of your DNA code. You know that many drugs only work well on some people and can cause serious side effects in others. The 
reason is variations in DNA, our genetic differences. But we understand how these DNA differences change the building blocks of your body, the proteins, and we can simulate in a computer how drugs interact with them. By testing drugs on your virtual body, your doctor may eventually be able to test a wide range of drugs and select precisely the right one to suit you. But sometimes, choosing the right drug is not enough. We must also be able to deliver it to a precise target in the body. Take inhaled drugs, for instance which can end up in the walls of your nose or at the bottom of your lungs, depending on the intricacies of your particular respiratory system. Using supercomputer simulations based on scans of your lungs, we can predict with high precision where particles will flow and then design devices that can do exactly where your body needs them. Mastering drug delivery means controlling the body's main transport network, your circulatory system. By simulating the movement of red blood cells and other cells, we can understand important protective processes, like those that prevent blood loss after an injury. Virtual humans could help doctors to plan risky surgery too. They could be used to work out how to reach an aneurysm deep in the brain that is at risk of rupture, which could cause a stroke. Surgeons could then try out the best treatment or implant to suit the location and shape of that particular aneurysm. They could even double check that the implant will not cause problems, such as clotting, before they try it out on you. and biology intertwine in your circulatory system to drive the most remarkable pump that evolution has ever created, the heart. To create a virtual heart, processes have to be modelled at multiple scales, from the contraction of muscle, to the blood flowing through its chambers, to the movement of charged atoms during a contraction. Virtual hearts already beat within supercomputers, where we can test the effect of different drugs or pacemakers, but also more fundamentally, to understand the way an individual's heart works. Your virtual avatar will not only be built in your image, it will also move like you. We can use it to calculate the forces and the mechanical stresses that are constantly induced on your bones and predict the risk you will suffer a fracture. Doctors can also use virtual humans to work out how diet, exercise or drugs can help those with brittle bones. And what if we go even further than treating disease, using virtual humans to prevent illness? Within a supercomputer, many virtual versions of you can explore small changes in your lifestyle and how they affect your health, aging and quality of life. Virtual Humans, helping you to figure out the very best that you can be.
So that is the vision to have a digital avatar that contains all of your health data integrated in one system so that you can test different things out on it. Your doctors can try surgeries on it, can try new therapeutics on it. And of course, because it's a digital twin, it's going to need to be built inside a supercomputer. So I've borrowed a figure here from my colleague, Gavin Pringle up at the Edinburgh Parallel Computing Center. And this is the simplest computer possible, the simplest architecture. It has three main parts, a processor, and it's the floating point unit where the calculations are being done. It has memory and it has storage, or you might be more familiar with calling that a disk. And the calculations in the floating point unit are calculated in operations, floating point operations per second, or flops. So we're going to come back to flops throughout the course of this talk. This kind of architecture is in most computers that you would be familiar with, a laptop, a desktop. It has multiple cores. It shares memory. It shares storage. If you are an iPhone user and you have an iPhone 11, your phone actually has six cores inside it already. So this is an architecture that started off in very complex machines and now has come into our day-to-day -day phones. And there's about a 15-year lag between when something shows up in a state-of-the-art machine and ends up in your phone or in your laptop. And this is just one of the possible schematics to show the architecture of a supercomputer is tremendously complex. It has this unit that we've seen here, repeated many times, many cores within a node, many nodes within the machine, all talking to each other, and interactions between nodes. And it can run its calculations in parallel. And that's particularly important and how it achieves its speed. Now, this is Maranostrum. This is the supercomputer in Barcelona, Spain. This is actually the supercomputer on which the IMAX film we just saw was rendered. All IMAX films are rendered on supercomputers. And this machine was built in a deconsecrated church, which was initially a cinema and then turned into the Barcelona Supercomputing Center. It is absolutely gorgeous. If you are in Barcelona, please do see if you can get a spot on one of the visits and the tours that go through because it's fabulous to see. And it was voted the most beautiful data center in the world. It has about 165,000 cores inside it. And it is actually starting to be one of the smaller machines. Now, not only are there beauty competitions for supercomputers, there are speed competitions for supercomputers. And the top 500 is a list that is issued quite frequently, several times a year, and it's where everybody wishes to find themselves. This shows you that this year, the top supercomputer is a machine called Fugaku, which is in Japan, and it has a speed of 400,000 teraflops. Now, you will be familiar with gigabytes, megabytes, terabytes. These are teraflops, so it's approximately 400 petaflops. And just for comparison, the human brain is estimated to calculate at a speed of 0.1 petaflop. So this is 4,000 times faster in terms of the calculation speed than the human brain. And these machines are geared for speed. And you can see, if we look at this list over time, that the position of machines 
So Fugaku displaced Summit, which had been in the top of the top 500. You can also see that the speeds are becoming faster and faster, and we are now coming towards the supercomputer of the future. We are moving from the petascale into the exascale. So a petaflop is 10 to the 15 floating point operations or flops per second. An exaflop is a thousand times faster. It's 10 to the 18. And this is a machine called Aurora, which is going to come online at the Argonne National Laboratory in the United States in 2021. Machines, uh, exascale machines will be coming online in Europe. And the UK's initiative for building an exascale machine is called Excalibur. So, the faster these machines get, the easier it will be to integrate all of the parts of the virtual human. So I mentioned the top 500 is for speed, but you don't really necessarily want your computer to be fast. The speed is not always the most important characteristic. You need an architecture of the supercomputer that matches the work that you're going to be doing. And for putting the virtual human together, we have identified three very specific patterns that we do our computation in. The first is monolithic. You take one job and spread it over most of the supercomputer. And for these exascale machines, remember I said that Marinostrum 4 has about 165,000 cores. These exascale machines have millions of cores. So a monolithic job is just one thing that goes across the entire machine. You can have coupled patterns where multiple units communicate with each other assigned to different parts. And then you can have this third pattern, which is where we very frequently find ourselves working with a virtual human ensemble or workflow, where you have things happening concurrently, moving back and forth and integrating to give a final output that's your desired answer. Now, this is my part of the virtual human. I'm a molecular biologist. I'm an experimental molecular biologist who's moved into computation because this allows us to answer some questions that weren't really able to be addressed by using experimental methods. I'm interested in cell surface receptors. This is one that you can see here. Let's have a look at that again. This is the receptor and it's got its molecule that is the drug that binds to it to be activated. And I work in drug discovery and personalized medicine. And one of the things that has been discovered to be very important in drug discovery is something called residence time. The longer a drug stays at the receptor, the more likely it is to make it through clinical trials and be effective for prescribing for patients. So what we do in our computational experiments is we take and look, let me get this back again, at a drug, as it leaves its binding site in the receptor, we look at all the places where it makes, oops, sorry, makes these points of contact. And so you can see all the different stages it contacts as it goes out. And this information helps us know how to modify drugs so that they will stay at their targets longer. And the kinds of data that we use for this are genome sequences. So this is from the molecules of the DNA in your genome protein structures, ligand structures, and these different types of data are integrated and used for these studies. This is the virtual heart. The supercomputer in which it is beating is Marinostrum, 
And this is a very interesting example of being able to integrate different types of data. So a patient CT scan is integrated with the ECG data, and this information is used to build inside the supercomputer a heart that is the exact replica of theirs, not only in its anatomical structure, but in its function. And interestingly, without being told whether a patient is male or female, Marinostrum can tell from the heart that it assembles together, the virtual heart that it builds, it can tell if the patient was male or female. Now, this is a very interesting example of ways in which we can prove things for ourselves as we age by understanding how you walk, integrating your gait with x-rays and with bone mineral density, it's possible to work out where the stresses are in your femur, for example. And then you can do things like shape orthotics for your shoes to help remove unnecessary stress that's present on the femur head. So these are all examples of aspects that we are currently building in the virtual human. So putting this all together requires sophisticated exascale computers for the individual parts, particularly for things in the molecular side of things. Because one of the things that's critical for being able to use a virtual human for healthcare is that you need to be able to do all the computational work on a time scale that's relevant, clinically relevant. It can't take months to be able to work out what the right drug to design or to find for a person is. This is something that you need to do in a matter of minutes or hours, days. At the, at the most. So this is why these machines need to be very fast. This is why we're looking towards the next generation of exascale computers. And if one component of the virtual human needs to be built inside an exascale machine, then the whole thing does. So for now, we have these different aspects that we've been working on, independent components, and their specific computing patterns. But as William Gibson, the author said, and this is the person who coined the term cyberspace, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. And what we need to do is join all these bits up. Now, how would we be using a virtual human? Well, there are two key things that we need to be able to use our virtual humans. And the first is informed policymakers. So on the right, you can see that we went to Evidence Week in 2019. We're in the upper hall, uh, waiting hall at Parliament, explaining to policymakers, to people in the House of Lords and people in the House of Commons, what the importance is of data and the importance of being able to regulate and have clear regulatory pathways for these medical treatments. So much of what can be done now cannot actually be used in a clinical setting because it's not yet been through a regulatory process. The software that's used to generate this information is classified as a medical device, and the data from the software is classified as a medical device. So to be able to use these treatments, we need to find ways to help policymakers find safe and effective and rigorous methods of evaluating them and then of making them available to people. The second thing that we need is trained minds. We need our clinicians and our scientists of the future to be as familiar with computational methodologies and what computing and supercomputing can offer as they are with their own particular discipline, whether it's medicine or an aspect that supports medicine. And so one of the things that UCL particularly excels at is seamlessly integrating research and teaching. And we have had undergraduate 
molecular biosciences students, we have had medical students using these supercomputers, including Marinostrum, as part of their hot curriculum at UCL. We started this in 2017, and this is our fourth year, and we've had almost 600 people go through, and we're continuing to do this. It's very, very important that the next generation of clinicians understands the power of this, that the regulators and the policymakers understand the benefits that this can have, because those are as important as generating the data and the virtual avatar is in bringing this to us for our health and our well-being. Now, I've given you a very brief whirlwind tour. I imagine you have loads of questions, so I'm going to hand over very shortly to, to Roger. But what I wanted to point out is that this is a huge endeavor with people from universities, from industry, from all kinds of places, but it is UCL-led, and it's something that I'm very proud to be involved in. So over to you, Roger. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Andrea. Fantastic presentation. Lovely to see the, um, the IMAX film that we'd, uh, we premiered in the Science Museum a few years ago. Absolutely. Um, and obviously working hard with the Barcelona supercomputer uh, people. Um, let me just check um, the questions that have come in. I've got a couple of one quite uh, general ones now, but um, one that I think is kind of quite fun is why do we need supercomputers for this? You know, isn't this very 20th century? Why don't we use AI and machine learning um, rather than these, these huge computational... That's that actually a really good question. So AI is a very data hungry resource that when you provide it with a huge wealth of data, it's able to make predictions that are based on that, on the information that it has. But what we're looking at here for virtual humans is designing something that is specific for a person, specific for an individual. So there's a real difference between when you compute something which would be for an individual person. And when you want to predict something for a population, how rapidly a virus will spread, for example, or how effective therapeutics will be on a large range of different people. Now that said, we do use AI in aspects of the virtual human because there are some things that there's only a finite number of possible answers when you compute them. So something in the molecular structure and the way in which atoms can move, there's only so many ways in which they can move. And so the first time you calculate that, you need to have computed it. But anything that you do with it subsequently afterwards is going to be something that you can just have fed into an AI and it will tell you how many times it's seen something and therefore plug the most probable one into the next step of compute you do. So we can actually use AI to bridge the bits that absolutely need to be computed for the individual by using knowledge that's AI generated about general circumstance. And I suppose actually there's a there's a kind of deeper issue here, isn't there? That where uh, with an AI, with a typical machine learning system, you're training it on data, um, mm -hmm. and there's the other approach, which is physics-based modeling, where you actually have got the equations, you understand, and you can predict the behaviour. And actually, isn't the feeling that you probably need both to make progress? You know, each one offers advantages and disadvantages. Yes, absolutely. 
So the real trick in all of this is knowing absolutely what you need to be using and at what time you need to know the right tool for the job. And you need to make sure that you have the right resource available to you. So there's absolutely no problem. And, and these supercomputers architectures are designed to enable things to move between different parts of the machine. So you can send something out for an AI calculation and then bring it back into the workflow that you're generating and then carry on with that. But there, there is no one way that it's right. And in fact, they probably shouldn't be thought of as separate things. You want a defined outcome, which is to build a digital twin of an organ or a person or something, and you just use multiple resources for it. I mean, you, you don't eat a meal with just a fork. Okay, and I've got a question here from Mark. How would this work with new diseases such as COVID-19? Well, there are a lot of different ways in which you could see that this would work. Having an ability to test therapeutics on a digital avatar, test a vaccine on a digital avatar, test a new drug on a digital avatar before you do a clinical trial on individuals would make the process simpler and faster. And a lot of clinical trials that were done, there were some compounds that were tested at the start of COVID-19 to see whether they were effective on SARS-CoV-2. And after a while, they dropped out of the clinical trials because they were shown not to have an effect. This kind of system would enable you to work out whether the compound was likely to be effective or not so that your trials were, uh, were based on the best picks, the, the, the top right. candidates, and you could see the most effective of those. There's got, another way, actually. Oh, sorry, Roger. There's another no, no, way. No, I was going to say, I mean, what I find fascinating is, you know, if you'd asked me to bet um, last March whether we'd have a custom-made therapeutic or, say, an RNA vaccine, a vaccine of a type that's never been made before for COVID-19, I would have said we'd have some sort of repurposed old antiviral. But in fact, exactly the opposite's happened. In fact, it's been a bit disappointing, hasn't it? The, the, the real antivirals for COVID-19. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's a family of viruses. The coronaviruses are ones that less was known about than some others. So they were a little bit um, disadvantaged in that regard. And also you're trying to do everything simultaneously and that's always quite complicated as well. But there are lots of efforts that people have gone through trying to find um, through, through screening, this kind of screening on supercomputers, looking for compounds that will interact and hopefully block COVID-19 proteins. So the helicase, um, the dependent polymerase, all those sorts of things, the spike protein are targets that people were looking to block, but also people have looked the other way and tried to identify compounds that would prevent, for example, infection. So the ACE2 receptor is the target that spike right. comes into. So how can you prevent spike from getting in instead? And all those kinds of things. I, I agree. I think it's the first time we've ever had such an opportunity to do drug discovery and drug repurposing so rapidly. Yeah. Because I mean, I think it, it's a big story. I mean, it's a big, huge other story, but it's it's still a bit of a shocker how um, cumbersome the existing system of drug development is. It's like a billion dollars and 10 years and so on. So we still got a way to go, haven't we, to, uh, well, to, to realize the dream of a of 
concocting a personalized therapeutic in, in pandemic time. You know, I think this might be one of the driving forces for that, because if the previous model of drug discovery has been it costs a huge amount of money to make a drug that's effective, then when that finally is approved and makes it to the market, you need a lot of people to take it. Yeah. And so there's a whole gap for those things that are needed by very few people or maybe just one person. And I think we've seen that there's a tremendous benefit um, or a, an, an unseen advantage in sort of biotechnology in the pharmaceutical industry in these RNA vaccines and creating and producing and distributing them yeah. at scale and getting them to people. So it's a more diverse model and it also focuses attention. You know, we don't know why some people have been badly affected or even killed by COVID-19. We don't know why some people have side effects to antibodies, significant, uh, sorry, to the vaccines, significant side effects to the vaccines. And that points out that although we're all very similar to each other, there are certain differences somewhere that might make some people more susceptible than others. And this kind of system that looks at an individual and tries to understand what that thing is that is different right. and therefore what kind of best treatment best protection would be for them is is i think the potential of of the virtual human so i would expect that there will be other viruses i think this wasn't the pandemic that people anticipated yeah so. and no, absolutely. Although it, interesting, you know, WHO I think was was warning about disease X a, a few years ago as a coronavirus. Um, oh. But anyway, look, this let let me move on to yet another question. I've got one uh, one from Fiona here, who asked, "Do you envisage doctors being able to run simulations in real time in a clinic with patients for behavioural change, uh, e.g., for smoking cessation?" That's a fantastic question, because where we are now is looking at organs and tissues and structures like skeletons and things that involve the kind of data that comes from blood tests, understanding what your brain biochemistry is like, understanding that the, there will be need there will need to be a lot of fundamental science that goes along hand in hand with this to really understand what sorts of biomarkers you're looking for, the things that tell you what to tweak, how to change something. Those are the things that you would expect to be integrating into sort of did virtual human 2.0 or virtual human 3.0. So we anticipate starting and then flushing out the skeleton. And I would really hope that we could get to the behavioral things quite rapidly. There's so much that we, the genomics is far more advanced as a high throughput technology than proteomics and metabolomics and some of the other things that are really interesting. Um, single cell work telling us what's going on in a particular cell, in a particular neuron, in a particular part of the brain, that kind of information is going to be incredibly helpful in trying to do the sorts of things that you're asking about. I think we'll get there. I hope I'm around to see that. If I don't know a... how long it will take. <laughs> well, I suppose these, these I mean, we're, 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 if you look across the planet, virtual organs and subsystems, they're already being 
used, aren't they, for treat? I mean, we haven't got to the yes. virtual human yet, but there's an awful lot of real clinical work underway, isn't there? Mm -hmm. So the question, there was a second part in Fiona's question about would a clinician run a simulation? And that's a really interesting question that we are interested in finding out more about from our clinicians, because of course, there's a lot of interaction between the computational information and between the clinical practice that they do. But this is such a new area that it's not yet clear how much of it a clinician will want to be doing themselves, will need to be doing themselves. I mean, they don't do blood tests themselves. This is There are some things that are outsourced to laboratories and imaging centers and things like that. So this is an area to explore about how how much do you need to know about the technology? You need to know about its pitfalls and its advantages and where best to use it. But how much of it do you actually need to do yourself? And I think we'll need to get some way down the track with, with these digital twins before we get a good feel. And it, it's probably a matter of personal choice and personal interest. Yeah. In fact, there's, there's a related question that's just come in from Tobias, which is, how frequently will I need to sync with my virtual human? So I suppose there he, he's pointed out that, you know, you feed in all this data, but it's just a snapshot of the body at a given time and the body's evolving and changing the whole time. So I guess that's a bit of a how long is a piece of string question, but go on, you try to answer it. Well, it is a tricky one, isn't it? <laughs> so I... I guess you would need to make a clear distinction between things that are sort of sustained and unlikely to change over time. Your skeletal architecture isn't likely to change over time. If you have atherosclerosis, this is something that you are likely to see develop over time. And so you would expect to be able to, I would hope, refresh with any test that you have done. But if you're actually looking at tuning your health and your well-being, you probably are going to want to be doing things more frequently. You're going to want to have feedback from what your exercise program is like or feedback about what your nutritional plan is doing and how it's integrating with things. So I guess I would offer, Roger, that a huge number of people have fitness trackers and health apps and they log into them all the time. So there's probably going to be data that individuals can put in and they can update as regularly as they like and data that clinicians put in that come from formal medical tests or interventions like that. And so I think there's going to be two different levels uh, at which syncing takes place. And in fact, I suppose on the clinical side, what's interesting is our bodies are ruled by a circadian rhythm and we know that certain drugs are more effective at certain times of day and so on. So at the very least we're going to have to build us it's going to have to have a circadian rhythm isn't it yes or i mean not every individual likely has the same circadian rhythm so this again is something that's going to be really beneficial for an individual to have a digital avatar of themselves where you can work out what the actual circadian rhythm is and work to that of the individual rather than what we understand as being sort of the, the general body clock that people have, you know, the awake periods, the the uh, the, the sleep periods, rest and in periods. fact, you you mentioned the the rise of smartphone data, and I suppose um, thinking about AI and diagnosis, for example, 
that seems to work. It seems to show promise in very controlled circumstances like mammography using the same scanners in the same way for the same data sets. You can train the AI in a kind of controlled circumstance. Um, for AI, we're going to get more and more unstructured data coming into the system where you've got a plethora of different Fitbit style things, picking up your heart rate or the number of steps or whatever. Presumably that's going to present all sorts of challenges. Well, they, there is this concept of a single source of truth with respect to data. And so it's going to be quite challenging to define what that is, or at least- We, we to, used to call it God, Andrea, but unfortunately it doesn't exist. <laughs> well, in computational terms, the, the single source of truth for data, you know, what is the unequivocal yeah. thing? And, and it may be that, this, so, so for example, I have a fitness tracker and I track things on my phone. The steps on my tracker and the steps on my phone are different to each other. The fitness tracker has a health rate monitor built in, but when I exercise, I use a heart monitor that's on a chest strap. There is some significant difference between those as well. And this is one of the reasons for involving policymakers and regulators so that you can understand absolutely what are the baseline yeah. criteria and the baseline definitions that are being adhered to. So you can almost sort of see um, like some computers where, where you don't have administrative rights on, on the machine, but you're a user on the machine. You can see that there would be a certain level of data that are put into the virtual human that are controlled, medical data that are controlled. And then there's sort of, there's sort of ancillary data that a user can put in and you would expect some kind of prioritization or, or yeah. ranking so that it, it's, and actually that's something that one of our colleagues, Peter mm -hmm. Coveney has been involved in is this validation and verification and uncertainty quantification so that you have absolute confidence and certainty in the outcome that you get back from a calculation. And so I expect that there would be parts of the virtual human that would be VVUQ'd and other parts that we could play with and see how things changed around. So we're talking about Peter, Peter Coveney, that's the best-selling co-author of a couple of books that escaped my uh, attempt. But anyway, we, we won't talk about them. Well, get your attention, Roger. I'm surprised. <laughs> I thought you were a co-author of them too. Just, just to pick up again on the, uh, on the kind of dynamic nature of the body and, uh, you know, using smartphones and so on. There's a rise in a field called digital phenotyping where there's a lot of interest in picking up smartphone data and trying to pick up say changes in mental health or whatever, you know, from activity patterns and so on. And I talked to one expert in the field who said the way that, that mental health works at the moment is we wait for people to turn up at A&E before we, mm -hmm. we, in effect, before we do anything about it it will be great to get warning signs. Um, and presumably there, there's, there's a lot of potential there for those sorts of data sets for the, for the virtual human. There is potential for those data sets. I am also aware of some apps. So if somebody has identified that they might have mental health concerns, there are apps that they can use that they sign into. And it's the pattern that comes specifically from the interaction with that app that helps right identify and flag things for people. I'm not so sure whether it can be done easily just from data that come from a phone, because of course that has all kinds of privacy concerns around it and use of data and who gets these data and how. And again, that's why 
I'm so keen to, we're, we're going back to Evidence Week with the virtual human um, this year in 2021. And I'm very, very keen because there's a lot of data that are involved in putting mm. this kind of avatar together. And it, even just looking at what you can do on your smartphone or what you can do with your smartphone. I mean, the COVID apps and the track and trace apps and things like that. There's the COVID app that's been the Zoe app that's been tremendously useful in identifying patterns and new symptoms and outcomes for people. But there are questions that people may have around whose yeah. data are they? How are they used? Where are they used? Or can they be part of something larger? And there's no right or wrong answer, but it would be nice to know where one stands in those sorts of things before you launch into trying yeah. to use your smartphone for, for a purpose. And it, it might involve some kind of monitoring that people take exception to and, and should know about. About years ago, I chatted with, a, I think, a chap from Nokia Research who told me that he could tell how happy someone was from the accelerometer in a smartphone and claimed that you'd have a slightly more jaunty um, gait than, you know, foot dragging, slightly gloomy. And he, he claimed that you, he, he could use anonymized, there's, there's lots of interesting ideas about contagion of mood and emotion and so on. He could see, you know, populations getting gloomier or happier or whatever from, from smartphone data. But in, in fact, on really the, <laughs> there's a, a would, nice, would you... interesting anonymous uh, question here, which is rather profound. If I'm clinically depressed, will my virtu virtual human be depressed too? Ah, that's a good one. Oops. It would have to be conscious, first of all, I guess, which is, I, I think, rather a tall order. But anyway, over to you on that one. I think that will depend on whether you're looking at virtual human 2.0, 3.0, or 4.0. But if you have a capacity to determine what metabolic markers, what molecules, what chemicals, are present and if you can test for them and if you know what associates with something then you would be able to use that information and yes your your virtual avatar will be depressed but you you're you're um you're you're doing it not not from a depressed conscious brain point of view but but from biomarkers that are linked something in the yes, blood well, or you, something you like would... that linked with yeah. But then there's the other way that you're talking about, mm. uh, or we're mentioning about using apps and apps that sense mood. I mean, your your virtual human is going to be the ultimate smartphone. So and it's going to be able to pick things up and you would be able to tell it. So yes, if you tell yeah. it I'm depressed, it's going to start perhaps looking for some indicators of, of depression. Right. And yes, I, I think that there's probably every likelihood it, it's going to that the closer it is in being twinned to you, the more likely it is to reflect you accurately. And if that is part of your state, that is what should be being reflected in your digital twin, your digital version of your analog self. Got another question from an anonymous uh, person here, which I think is rather good. And I'm sure I've heard it before, but but it's a great one, so I'm going to ask it again. Which is, what if your doctor tests a potential treatment on your virtual human and it dies? Ooh, that's a two-parter. First, for your doctor, 
whatever they did or tested on the virtual human is clearly something not to test on you. Yeah. Um, so in, in a way, it's, it's kind of great news. Thank, thank yeah. goodness it wasn't me, doctor, that you tried that experimental drug Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's very few things you get a chance to know the outcome of before, before you undergo them. And that's one of the nice things about having a digital avatar is that it can take the hit and be rebooted afterwards and come back. It's, it's in a much better position for that. And the second thing, of course, is, you know, you can just restart your digital avatar. You can go back to the point before that treatment or that particular thing was given, which is the interesting question about can you age out your avatar? Can you try different things on it over a period of time and see how those respond? And you would always age it out and then go back to the, the set point when you started yeah. from. So digital avatars, in a sense, can time travel. Well, that's there's another question. Backwards in time. So th this, there's another question here, which actually is it, it, just probing that a bit more, which is, will your supercomputer be, be able to develop faster than you? If they can think faster, surely this means they could be better than you and faster than you could be. They can calculate faster than a human brain is estimated to calculate, but they don't have the same level of complexity and interconnection and ability to assimilate so much information from such a large diversity of sources. So in that sense, Again, this goes back to the top 500, faster isn't better. It's all about what the job is and what's, what's needed to do the job. I mean, I'm mindful of the fact that there probably is an opportunity to discover through the use of these that there's something that you don't need to be doing that your digital twin can do for you. Yeah. There's something that you might be tremendously good at that you hadn't appreciated that is highlighted somehow in this interaction and in this engagement. And if you think back to sort of the, the 50s and the 60s and the advertisements about the flying cars and the robots cleaning your house and things, and you know we're many years on, half a century on, and we've not seen these things yet, yeah. but then we have, because we have robot vacuum cleaners. But the idea at the time was that it would be a robot that just looked like a human that went round and did the vacuuming in the way that the human did. So when the virtual avatars start coming online, I think we will find in a similar way that there are things that we don't anticipate now because we've not seen them to know them um, mm. that will be benefits that will come out. And there may well be offsets as well. And again, that's why it's really quite important to have some kind of a, a framework, a governance framework around these technologies and the use of them. I've got one more uh, question before me, which sort of picks up again on what, what you've just been talking about. If virtual humans are created from genetic data and physiological measurements, how would it mirror phenotypic changes throughout life, aging, uh, illnesses, and so on? And I suppose sort of implicit in that is the idea that you don't have to have just one virtual human. You could have, there could be hundreds of Andreas all with slight experiencing slightly different conditions and so you can sort of do a controlled trial on yourself i guess to to health cast what the best way to live your life should be that is a really interesting question and i think 
it's going to depend. It goes back to the how frequently do you sync question. Yeah. You know, the, the more frequently you sync, the more likely it is to be attuned to yourself at that time. But we're talking about things, you know, we're just talking, Roger, about exascale machines coming online and how this will give us the much needed compute power to be able to do these things. And there's the zeta scale after the exascale and the yeta scale after Well, I was going to say to you, the zeta what, scale. So how, how, just, just unpack that a little bit, sort of how, what sort of things do you think you, you could manage on an exascale machine? And what do you think you could deal with, you know, with those next generation zeta scale machines and so on? I think that doing things like the drug design, the molecular discovery, finding, designing ligands for proteins, a person who, whose doctor diagnoses a disease that's caused when their genome is sequenced, it's identified what the defective protein is, so you know what the shape of their protein is and how it's different to other people's proteins. You can work out whether treatments for other people would work on them. If they need a new one, you can make that. And you can do that all in a clinically relevant timescale, so you can do it very, very quickly. And we've started integrating things. We're pre-exascale, so we're just at the edge of the petascale now. And we can integrate blood flow from the whole body with a beating heart. So those are two models that have now been combined and put together. So I think the exascale will see us have a, a basic system that is organs, muscles, tissues, bone, yeah. those sorts of things. And I think that as we push towards the edge of the exascale, we'll start seeing some of these, because we need the science to go in lockstep with this. You need to understand what the specific molecules are in uh, and metabolites, the, the metabolomics of depression, for example, before you know what to do about that or how to interrogate your digital twin and, and sort something out with that. So I think, I think the Zeta scale will be the bit that is where the next layer of sophistication is added on. And I think it will move in quanta of, of um, progress. I suppose just for a final uh, comment before I, I, um, I make a few closing remarks and putting my science director of the Science Museum group hat on, I suppose what fascinates me is that it, the virtual human sounds like it, it's a brand new thing, but actually it's got its roots in research that goes back to say the use of simulation in the Manhattan program mm -hmm. to develop mm -hmm. the first atomic weapons. Then there's the um, uh, Hodgkin Huxley work coming up with a mathematical uh, model of an impulse going down an axon. Then you've got, I mean, Dennis Noble, who is still going strong, yep. coming up with a model of a, of a heart cell in the 60s and using really antiquated old computers to simulate a couple of seconds of, of time on, on that simple model. Then I think in the 90s, he worked with Ray Winslow and others on a connection machine to make a whole beating heart. And I think Peter Coveney's just recently digitized the whole circulatory system of someone. <laughs> and the next stage will be to couple that to a digital heart. So there's actually a lot of research out there, isn't there, in this field? Yeah, there's, there's a huge amount of research out there. And these things are all linking together. And it's not necessarily just research in the biomedical domain either. I mean, you mentioned the Manhattan Project. The kinds of computing algorithms that are used 
for blood flow, for example, or lattice Boltzmann solvers. And these are things that are used by NASA to try and reduce spacecraft noise or to try and reduce drone noise. Their flow, they look at flow, flow of sound, flow of air, and we're using it to look at flow of blood. I understand from chatting with colleagues that we are in the molecular simulations about 15 years behind where the astrophysicists were when they needed to do something many times. So you don't just do a calculation once, you do an ensemble full of many replicas. And it's the functional equivalent of what I do as an experimental molecular biologist in the lab. I do an experiment many times with many replicates so that I have an average value with a low error. And I know that that is a reasonably quantified value. And we're starting to do this now. We do ensemble-based calculations and they consume huge amounts of compute. And that does sort of beg the question of how much compute does each person get? It used to be sort of how, how much wireless did you get how much data did you get on your smartphone and now it's going to be you know how much compute do you get for for your virtual human so there's all sorts of layers in there but basically there's always a drive to use whatever tool or resource is available to understand a question of particular interest and i just think that it's absolutely fantastic that clinicians and biomedical scientists are starting to stick their toe into territory that was previously only the domain of material scientists and chemists and physicists and meteorologists. And, you know, it's, it's a fantastic new opportunity for all of us. It's a learning opportunity. And we have the absolute good fortune of having the virtual human championing us, you know, in all the people that we've spoken to about this concept of having a digital avatar who can help you manage your health and well-being, we've never encountered a single person who didn't ask, well, when can I have mine? Right. Nobody was opposed to them. So <laughs> we have the ultimate um, opportunity and thing of general public interest and personal interest for, for us yeah. as well that will help get us computationally where our... Um, our, our colleagues in other fields have gone before. And I think for me, it's really exciting that medicine, rather than being based on what hundreds, if not thousands of people who say genetically are a bit like you, how they behave in a mm -hmm. circumstance, it's gonna become predictive. You know, we're gonna have yes. a crystal ball, which is yes. gonna be revolutionary, I think. But sadly, I, I, Andrew, we, we've run out of time. I'd like to thank everyone online uh, for joining us. Um, I'd like to thank um, our wonderful technical help, Matt, Sandy, Emma, and Sana. Um, there's a bit more about virtual humans on the Comp Biomed site and on the Science Museum blog. Um, there's many more um, lunch hour lectures coming up and you can find out about them on the UCL Minds webpage. And most of all, thank you so much, Andrea, for your brilliant talk. Um, mm -hmm. Stay well, everyone. And See you soon.